Well, I want to begin tonight with the same questions that I began that I began with last week because the point that Jesus um, made last week is the point that he continues to make tonight. And so the questions remain relevant uh, for us as we move, uh, continue to move through uh, this sermon in Luke 6. The questions were these, how should we respond to those who war against us and who, are, who persecute us and seek our destruction? How are we or how should we respond to those uh, who express disgust and malice toward us? How should we respond to those who insult us and slander us and malign us and revile us and falsely accuse us and spurn us? And how, how should we respond to those who hurt us by using us for their own ends or toward their own ends and for their own benefit and pleasure? How should we respond to people who demand things from us that they do not have, have not earned, or uh, have been withheld that they believe they are owed? And finally, how should we respond to people who abuse their power and their authority and who intimidate us by forcibly taking that which is ours? You remember I said that the world responds with retribution and retaliation and revenge. They demand reparations. They protest. They force of, uh, forcefully occupy. But I'd like to add to that tonight. They also vilify and stigmatize and overdramatize, overgeneralize. They discriminate. They establish and uphold inconsistent, inequitable, and prejudicial standards. They rush to judgment. They slander. They condemn. They censor. And today they cancel. And all the while, as they do this, they're putting themselves forward as just as well as the justifier of everybody else. However, as we saw last week, we're going to see again this week that Jesus' message in the midst of this sermon um, is quite the contrary. Very, very, vastly different from the world. We aren't to do what the world says. We're not to do what the world does Last week we saw that we are to respond in those situations with love. This week we are going to see that it doesn't get any easier because we are to respond with forgiveness and generosity, which is no less radical than the call to love. The outline is found in your bulletin for those of you who are guests with us, for those of you who are regularly a part of our fellowship, you'll find it in its normal place. Uh, this is part three of what we're calling this mini-series in this sermon in Luke 6. Uh, and there are three points, because as you heard, Jesus says three things. Matt just read a moment ago. He says three things. One, he mentions or shares the fact 
of reciprocity. He shares the fate of incompetency. And then finally, he shares the folly of hypocrisy. And that is our outline tonight. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, we thank you so very much for this evening. And we ask that by your spirit, that you would grant power to the preaching of your word. Would you awaken us, awaken our attention and and refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and convict us and comfort us as we see Jesus and as we hear his gospel this evening. As always, I admit I am weak and needy for this task to which you've called me and so I ask for your support, I ask for your strength and that you would fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Would you give us ears to hear Would you allow me the ability to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church? I pray and ask these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned, again, uh, the second thing that I mentioned last week, I asked those questions, but I also mentioned last week that the only way that we can fully understand what he's going to say this week is to understand or remind ourselves what he said last week, right? We want to do that for context's sake. And so we know that we've seen over the last couple of weeks that he has declared that his disciples were kingdom citizens. And their citizenship wasn't dependent upon uh, the presence or absence of material or um, financial things or, or uh, possessions or wealth. It wasn't dependent upon their lack or abundance of need. It wasn't dependent upon their optimistic or pessimistic attitudes. It wasn't dependent upon their positive or negative reputations or their positive or negative relationships that they were in. It was all dependent upon their faith in Him. It was faith in the Lord Jesus that determined their citizenship as uh, within the kingdom. And then he went on to describe them as those who could and would experience a deep abiding joy as citizens because their greatest treasure and, and the thing and actually the one who, uh, whom they uh, treasured most was Jesus. It was Christ who they valued And then he also exhorted them, and he wanted them, because he wanted them to understand that they were going to be poor, they were going to be hungry, they were going to suffer, they were going to be ostracized, they were going to be hated because of their identity with him. Because they valued him and because they had chosen to follow him, they were going to experience the repercussions from the world. But he also said that in the midst of all of that, they would be able to jump up and down in triumphant joy because they would know that their ultimate reward and the consummation of the kingdom was yet to come. So we've said over the last three weeks, their best life was not in the present. Their best life was to come. It was in the future. And then he said, because of who they were and because of who they valued and in light of what was ahead... There was a way that he desired for them to live. There was, there was a call that he was going to place upon them. There, was, there, were, there were commands that he was going to provide and give them in terms of how they should live. And, and as kingdom citizens who were treasuring him and who were following him and listening to him and hearing him and learning from him, they were to be distinct and set apart from those around them. They were to be different than the world 
In other words, as we've said, there was, we, we've looked at it and seen there's a world's way and there's a kingdom way. Two ways to travel. And we saw last week that the kingdom way is love. And we also, we also saw that the kingdom way was a difficult way. And it was a difficult way because we're not talking about a love that's merely a warm sentiment for human beings in general. It wasn't an erotic or sensual type of love or attraction shared between a man and a woman. It also wasn't a brotherly love, a mutual brotherly love shared between friends. We're talking about an unconditional love for enemies, The type of love who is looking out for the best interest of those who are antagonistic toward us. His instruction has been, you know, this isn't the easy thing, which is to love one another. It's not simply the uncomfortable thing, which is to love our neighbors and those who are unlovable and unlovely, but it's the difficult thing. Loving those who hate us. Loving those who, well, the call is to treat our enemies the way we wish our enemies would treat us, despite the fact that they are doing the exact opposite. They're not treating us the way we want to be treated. They're they're treating us in the exact opposite way that we desire to be treated and how we've treated them. But fortunately, we also saw that his love, that this love that we are called to has, has been and would be modeled. Jesus told his disciples it would be modeled for them. So Jesus wasn't simply commanding them to do something that the Father had not done or that he had not or would not do. It was something that, both, that they had done and had experienced. And being on the receiving end of that love, having having that love abundantly, in Paul's words, poured into their hearts, they could love in return. By His grace and by the power of, of the Spirit, they could work out of that abundance and they could, in fact, love and be able to live distinctly within the world. And as they did that, Jesus said they'd be rewarded. As they would be rewarded by the, the presence and pleasure of the Father. And of course, we said that what was true for them is true for us and why I've been switching back and forth between him saying to them and him saying to us, because it's all ours, the commands as well as the blessings. And that brings us to our passage tonight, because there's not really a break between verses 36 and 37 that I've placed there. So right on the heels of this radical love, they, they continued to hear what he was saying. And so we, have, we need that lead in. So right on, right on the heels of that radical love, he extends the call to forgiveness and generosity. And we could debate whether this was a separate call or with, whether this is just an extension of the love that we are to, to exhibit. Either way, the call is to forgive, to be a forgiving and a generous people. And he presents that, this command is given in the midst of what I've called the fact of reciprocity. Let's look at verse 37 and read 37 and 38 together. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, 
and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, if you'll remember three weeks ago, I said that this, in fact, uh, um, not only here in Luke 6, but in uh, Matthew 7, verse 1, uh, this verse is on that list of frequently misused Scripture. And it's used by Christians and non-Christians alike to deflect scrutiny of lifestyles, actions, and decisions. It's also used to dissuade judgments regarding good and evil, right and wrong, moral and immoral. But to fully understand what Jesus meant in the first part of 37, we can't We can't separate it from the second part of 37, and we can't separate it from the entirety of verse 38. So the first negative command to not judge has to be paired with the second negative command, which is to not condemn, and then that has to be paired together with the positive commands of to forgive and to give. We take all of that together. And when we do that, we realize what Jesus was not telling those who were listening to him at that time. For example, he was not telling them to refrain from reviewing or examining the behavior of others. He was not telling them to uh, or, or telling them to refrain from reviewing or examining social, political, and religious ideologies of others. He wasn't telling them to refrain from surveying or evaluating certain situations or circumstances in order to determine moral, ethical, spiritual, or theological levels of appropriateness. And he also wasn't telling them to refrain from determining or taking a position of some kind or from expressing what is believed to be right or wrong, good or evil, moral or immoral. So the question is, we know what it's not. The question is, what was he expecting? What was he commanding in this sermon? What was it they were to do and not to do? Well, first it's a command to refrain, but to refrain from pridefully and arrogantly taking on the position of judge, jury, and executioner. It was a command to refrain from, or not to refrain from, but it was a command to exhibit mercy rather than hostility. It was a command to exhibit grace rather than condemnation. It was a command to exhibit gentleness rather than harshness. It was a command to refrain from rushing to judgment, making assumptions, reading minds, and assigning motives. And it was a command to refrain from treating others as if they were lost causes and unsalvageable and unforgivable, beyond hope, because somehow They were beyond God's reach of forgiveness and restoration. He says, don't do that. He's not telling his followers to deny sin or act as if 
sins haven't been committed particularly against them. He isn't saying don't, don't deny the fact that there's guilt or responsibility. Don't act like that that doesn't exist. It was, again, quite the contrary. If there was no sin and there was no guilt, there would be nothing to forgive. So what he's telling them to do is to refrain from, with, from, from holding the sin and the guilt of others and against them in such a way that it communicated that their actions and the subsequent consequences that they would suffer were somehow permanent and irreversible and unforgivable. They were to refrain from treating others as if forgiveness was somehow forbidden and that they had been cut off from it as if forgiveness was only for some elite group and of course, it was a group to which they didn't belong. And let me remind all of us that we're talking about something, as we were last week, that's individual, deeply personal. We're not talking about um, institutional or, or governmental things in nature. As a matter of fact, it's, it's when our government is... Uh, appropriately wielding the sword on our behalf, and it's when the church is appropriately disciplining as it is called to do, that we as individuals are freed to love and to forgive and to not judge and to give in abundance. Now notice, as I said, this is all shared within this fact of reciprocity. It drives the commands home to us. He says, listen, if you choose to judge, and if you choose to condemn, and if you choose to withhold forgiveness, and if you uh, choose to be uh, tight-fisted, right, you're going to be treated the same by others. And the opposite is also true. If you, if you don't judge, and you, uh, and you don't condemn, and you do forgive, and you do give generously, uh, it will be, your kindness will be returned to you. Not always, but generally speaking. Generally speaking, that's how it works. But there's also a deeper point being made here. And that deeper point is that as we treat others, so will the Lord treat us. And of course, he's not saying at all, that salvation is based upon some weight and measure system, or that we earn salvation in any way. We don't earn it through our good works. He's saying, again, entire context, that there is, that there are two ways. There is the way of the world, and there's the way of the kingdom. And the world's way is one of pride and arrogance and hostility Harshness, condemnation, hopelessness. Why? Because it's devoid of the gospel. The gospel is absent. But the way of the kingdom, because it is the way of the gospel, that way is one of mercy and grace and forgiveness and gentleness and kindness and patience and hope. And that's because, because of the gospel, those who are on that way understand the depth of their own sin they, they understand the justice that they did deserve and do deserve, but they also understand the mercy and the forgiveness that they have 
graciously received in Christ. And how someone lives not only provides evidence of the way that they are on, but it also provides evidence of where that particular path is leading. So, walking a path of judging others is leading to the destination of personal judgment. And walking on the path of forgiveness is leading to the destination of personal forgiveness. And we're going to go into more depth on this particular point next week when we pick up, or not next week, but the week after when we pick up in verse 43, and it'll all come together. For now, I, I would like for us to, to just take a minute and do the fun thing, which is to examine our own hearts. Let's examine our own hearts and, and ask a few questions, and I want to broaden the application beyond just our enemies to, to include how we would respond to those who don't love us well or or who don't love us the way we love them, and, or don't love us the way we wish that they would love us. Do you pridefully and arrogantly put yourself in the position of judge, jury, and executioner? Are you more apt to exhibit hostility or mercy? Condemnation or grace? Gentleness or harshness? Do you rush to judgment and make assumptions and assign motives and read minds? Do you treat others as if they are lost lost causes, unforgivable, unsalvageable, beyond hope? Do you keep those Christians who are struggling with sin at arm's length? Do you shun or bash rather than befriend certain people who who live messy lives in the midst of messy problems? Do you criticize the sins of others more than you repent of your own? And do you judge others by a different standard than Christ judges you? It's not easy right now. It wasn't easy as I was writing them. Listen to the words of Philip Ryken. Jesus knows the whole truth about the full extent of our sin. Nevertheless, he reaches out to us in mercy, granting forgiveness through his death on the cross and offering eternal life through the power of his resurrection. Now, the way that we treat others ought to demonstrate the mercy that we have received in Christ. The grace we give flows from the grace that we have received and that we still need. Brothers and sisters, may we all repent where we need to repent and begin walking anew the way of, or, or the kingdom way that we've been called to walk as citizens, as disciples of His. And when we fail, which we will do, May we remember that where we fail in our love and in our judgment and in our forgiveness, Christ has perfectly loved and judged and forgiven. 
And not only are we recipients of that love and that forgiveness, but His perfection in those areas has been credited to us. So when we fail, we can repent and continue on and not give up and not lose hope because He is always faithful to forgive. And we can press forward in the power of the cross and we, we can, as you've heard me say many times over two and a half years, we can rest as we strive to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as kingdom citizens and disciples of the Lord Jesus. Well, in verse 39, Luke says that Jesus then shares a parable. He says this, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So in the light of this fact of reciprocity, he now, um, he, he knows that they need to be aware of this fate of incompetency. And so, he says that there are those who are going to attempt to come in and and lead them down the world's way. They're going to say that the world's way is right. They're going to say that the world's way is best. But the reality is, he says, they're blind. They can't see. They can't see the truth. And they themselves are completely unaware of the fact that they themselves uh, have uh, shortcomings, they, they are inadequate, and they are incompetent. And so we ask these questions, can a blind man lead a blind man? And the answer is obvious, no, he can't. And, and then he follows that up with, with, won't they both end up in a pit? And the answer, of course, is yes. And he says, the idea here is that a student is not going to progress beyond his teacher. And so if teachers of, of the world's way are themselves... Uh, inadequate and incompetent and full of shortcomings, that is the best any of you, he says to them, any of you can ever imagine uh, experiencing yourself because you're not going to move beyond them. You're going to listen to their teaching, you're going to model what they do, and he says, "And, and I want you to know that what they're teaching and what I'm teaching is very, very different. And I don't want you to follow them. I want you to follow me. He says, they're going to attempt to lead you down a path that ends in destruction. The path that I am leading you down and want to lead you down is a a path that leads to life. They're going to teach you and encourage you to be prideful and arrogant and hostile and to judge with condemnation, and it's going to result in hopelessness, but I'm going to lead you down the kingdom way that's full of mercy and grace and forgiveness and hope. If you want to experience life, follow me, listen to me, learn from me, model me. I will give you eyes to see, and as you keep them focused on me, you will stay out of the pit. 
Love as I have and will love you. Forgive as I have forgiven and will forgive you. Give as I forgive, have given and will give you. He's basically saying, I'm the only one that's competent here. Trust me. And brothers and sisters, of course, I mean, it, it makes the point itself, right? We, we need to follow, learn from, listen to, and model the Lord Jesus, period. But we also need to, to hear and, and, and be careful in regard to teachers and preachers that we follow, whether they be online or in, in books that we read, and not just careful in determining whether they're, they're teaching and preaching a true gospel, but how are they teaching and preaching? Pride, arrogance, hostility, judgment, and condemnation in tone and delivery, not to mention harping on the law without the salve of the grace and the mercy and forgiveness and hope that is ours in Christ is antithetical to the gospel. Seek out those who... Seek out those with gentle answers. Seek out those who concentrate on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. There is a time for admonishment and warning, but there is a far greater benefit on focusing on what we believe is right and what we are for rather than on what is wrong and what we are against. May we follow those who uphold the truth and are also generous and who lavish us with grace because that is exactly what Christ has done. In Paul's words in Ephesians 1, he has lavished upon us the riches of His grace. And finally, in verses 41 and 42, we see the folly of hypocrisy. The folly of hypocrisy. He says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And we, we take this, again, kind of the misuse, and we immediately apply this to the, the Pharisees, but in reality, there's nothing that gives us any indication that he's talking to the Pharisees, so he's talking to his disciples. And he ties this section into this nice bow by pointing out the hypocrisy of focusing on the sins of others while ignoring the sins of our own. He says, he, he said, uh, to focus on the sins of others all the while ignoring your own, to amplify the sins of others while downplaying or minimizing your own, to make much of the small sins of others while, while, again, downplaying the major sins of your own, 
or to think way too highly of yourself and believe that you are capable of dealing with the sins of others without dealing with the sins of your own is simply backwards. You're doing nothing but pretending. And what you're pretending is that the problem is with them when the problem is really with you. And all you're doing is projecting your issues onto others and deflecting attention away from yourself by saying, that again, the problem is theirs and not yours. Thankfully, he not only addressed the issue, he also provides or provided the solution. He says, before you attempt to help your brother or sister, by helping them with a blind spot, make sure you establish a proper estimation of both yourself and the other. Right? He says, examine your own heart first. Identify and grieve your own sin first. Determine how you need to you need to repent of your sin first. Remind yourself of how Christ has loved and forgiven you first. Then, then, then approach your brother or sister humbly, gently, grieving for their sin and its offense to the Lord and the sin that it's, and, and the, the effects of that sin and, and what it's having upon them. And don't simply identify it, but come alongside. Walk them along this path, the same path that you have walked. Bring them along that path with their sin, that same path that you have walked with your own sin. And brothers and sisters, there are times when we have the unfortunate task of pointing out and helping others to remove the splinters of sin. And we must be slow to speak and quick in our examination of ourselves. But we also don't have to wait to this point of arriving at sinless perfection in some way in order to be qualified to assist. We simply need to take the time that we need to make sure that there isn't any unconfessed two-by-four in our own eye. We must repent first and help second. Again, listen to these words from Philip Bryken. Jesus sees us as we really are, down to the last speck, because he is without sin, he is able to judge us with perfectly righteous clarity. But he does not condemn us, provided that we come to him in faith, trusting in the sacrifice he paid for our sins on the cross. With the help of his clear sight, we see both our sin and his forgiveness. 
then, then perhaps we can begin to see other people the way that Jesus sees them through the eyes of his grace. May that be so. May that be said of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. By your spirit and by 